Hello, everyone. I'm John Coleman here today with Dr. Nirmal Das. Welcome, Dr. Das. Thank you, John. Great to be here. Great to see you. In this recording, Dr. Das is going to give the concluding remarks to the series which we have been recording between Dr. Das and Mr. Joseph Atwell concerning Atwell's book, Caesar's Messiah. For a viewer, your homework, so to speak, to intelligently digest this is at the very least to watch the documentary on um, Joseph Atwell's site so you can understand what Atwell is saying at the very least also um, if possible, to read the text so you understand both uh, the, the initial thesis as well as Dr. Das's responses. I encourage viewers also to check out the uh, first and second installments of this series. This is a threaded discussion, and so the format of Dr. Das's critique, Atwell's response, and then Dr. Das's conclusion was decided beforehand. And I'm sure you as a viewer can appreciate the necessity to keep things within bounds. Otherwise, things just like an internet discussion just go on, on forever. So um, I think both gentlemen have, have um, you know, made their points and covered their bases. And we conclude as we planned with this recording. As I will say at the end of this, Besides asking uh, Nir Mal for uh, any uh, of his websites and this sort of thing, uh, and I'll give you mine, but I will also reiterate, viewers, that uh, if you have comments for this particular recording, please put them in the uh, description of this video on BitChute and on YouTube. So this is in order to respect the format of this debate, we don't want to... Um, uh, go beyond that. So um, your uh, correspondence is is certainly welcome, but it, we won't address it in this particular recording. So with that rigor moral all set up, Dr. Das, take it away. Thank you, John. Um, and uh, what I would like to do again is, uh, like I did last time, is basically read my prepared response. I thought it would be good to do a formal thing again because I don't want to just uh, do off-the-cuff remarks and so forth. So what I would like to do then is to uh, read my uh, response at this time that I've written out. I want to thank Mr. Atwell for his generous response to my analysis of his book. I'm deeply appreciative of his comments, but then he also su suggests that I have not read his book, a charge that is baseless. As I stated in my initial analysis, I preferred not to comment on the particularities of the book as it would be simply critiquing a man for his vision, which I have no interest in doing. But I will now also have to add that this book has nothing whatsoever to do with history. It is all just conjecture piled on top of misunderstanding, bolstered by falsehoods and justified by unfounded assumptions. This is why his book is nothing more than his vision. In his response, Mr. Atwell dismisses what I said <clears throat> as silly, or as sophistry and so forth, which is his privilege and which I find rather amusing. And in the spirit of Erasmus, there is wisdom in folly. He also says that I appeal to authority. I'm assuming the alternative is to appeal to ignorance. As you might have guessed, I do not subscribe to that school of thought, much current on the internet that runs to Wikipedia's list of logical fallacies. Thereafter, Mr. Atwell proceeds to construct a grand meta-narrative meta which supposedly is meant to dismantle what I said. His narrative may sound impressive to some in the lay audience, but in a scholarly context, what he says is full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In common parlance, he, la he lays out a grand word salad, and I will have to rummage around in it. I trust that none of what I say will be taken as a personal attack. I am merely critiquing his book and the ideas in it. I want to make that very clear. I quoted Shakespeare because Mr. Atwill has also recruited the Bard of Avon to his great cause. I'm sure, Shakespeare, I'm sure Shakespearean scholarship, like biblical scholarship earlier, now lies devastated with nothing to do but bow to Mr. Atwill's conclusions, for he has shown them what no one else has ever saw before, seen before, that the, that the work of Shakespeare is a great code book about Jewish revenge against the Goyim, just as the Bible is just a Flavian joke. Thus, thus, there is no text, nothing to read. 
now that Mr. Atwill has finally cracked the code. But notice the golden thread, which is far more dangerous, that Mr. Atwill's books serve as justifications for throwing out both the Bible and Shakespeare into the dustbin of history, that Mr. Atwill's books replace the Bible and Shakespeare. The road to the dark ages is paved by such code cracking. This urge for replacement is the great malaise of our age, the view that the past has no value, has nothing to teach, has nothing to offer. The past is nothing more than the source of our deceptions and must be overcome or destroyed and replaced. But replacement has never built civilization, nor ever will, because it is only destruction, it is only vandalism. The same sort of replacement that today seeks to pull down statues. This is what Mr. Atwell offers, a deep-seated barbarity in which there is no room for beauty as found in Shakespeare or spiritual strength as found in the Bible. Thus, we must individually decide where we stand for history or vandalism, for civilization or barbarity. Barbarous regimes have always taught, like the Soviet Union and other communist states, that Jesus was a myth. So by way of context, Jesus as a myth or a literary fabrication was the official view of communism. But I digress. My essential points remain unchallenged. Mr. Atwell's two centered arguments, two central argu arguments still remain baseless. First, there is no evidence outside his own book for a centralized fabrication by the so-called Flavian court. And second, there is no evidence for Jesus being a conglomerate of various stories. Both these arguments only find life inside Mr. Atwell's book. Once they are extracted out from it, they die. What do I mean? Mr. Atwell misunderstands typology. Therefore, his attempt at trying to show how Jesus is a construct of different stories falls flat. As he can, all he can point to is the Old Testament. But all he is really showing is what Christianity has said all along, that Jesus pervades the entirety of the Old Testament. Without Jesus, the Old Testament makes no sense. It is empty legality and obligation. Interestingly, Mr. Atwell suggests that I go to a dictionary to find out what the word typology means. Really? Think about that. A dictionary versus scholarship. That is what we're dealing with here. And what Mr. Atwell calls dealing with the evidence means him making things up as he goes along by way of casual, haphazard interpretations of cherry-picked words and phrases from all manner of texts over which he rides roughshod. These cherry-picked words are then isolated from all historical and textual context and given imaginative new meanings, which then magically turn into proofs for his fantastical hypotheses, which in turn all lead to the same conclusion. This strategy shows Mr. Atwell to say things like Jesus is Anubis or Jesus is Titus and so forth. For this reason, I still say that amateurs have nothing to offer in the great work of history. This may sound mean, leading some to emotional outbursts, but the fact remains, Mr. Atwell's two books can never emerge from the extreme dark fringe that they inhabit, and they can never come out into the clear sunlight of scholarship because there is nothing in them that can possibly contain the clear light of truth. The two books are simply not built for truth. Mr. Atwell has simply discovered 18th and 19th century conspiracy theories, which were debunked in their own time and given them currency in our time. Such is Mr. Atwell's methodology in both books. And I have read his book on Shakespeare as well, by the way. In philosophy, this is known as ontological reductivism and methodological reductivism. The former views reality as comprised of only a few parts, while the latter, therefore, seeks to explain things through ever smaller and smaller constructs. Reductivism is not a scholarly virtue. But then Mr. Atwell is not writing history, is he? He is writing speculative fiction. This is why Mr. Atwell's books can only impress certain members of the lay public and only those members whose personal knowledge is limited at best. Both his books are highly ignored by, are, are rightly ignored by Shakespearean and biblical scholarship. And this isn't because the educational system is corrupt. 
that's a deflection from the real issue. The said education system may be corrupt because of political and cultural forces, but scholarship itself is not corrupt. For example, nothing has corrupt, corrupted the learning of ancient languages. You still need to go through the discipline of education in order to properly learn Aramaic or Greek or Hittite. We should be very careful not to fall into an easy anti-intellectualism because we are told that the education system has become corrupted. Thus, Mr. Atwell reduces the great complexity of the Bible and of Shakespeare into simplistic and historically baseless sound bites, a Flavian joke or the revenge of the Jews. Now, all that's left to do is to keep ferreting out examples of one or the other, nod our heads in agreement and just admit we've been duped and move on to greater vandalism, which in the end is nihilism in action. Let me repeat, this is what Mr. Atwell's books offer, vandalism and nihilism. No need to read the Bible, it's a Flavian joke. No need to read Shakespeare, it's only an orgy of Jewish revenge worked on the hapless Goyim. And I might add, all written by a 19-year-old half-Jewish prostitute. Mr. Atwell then insists that history indeed includes code cracking and uncovering secrets. So any amateur can walk in, read a book here and there, read a lot of Wikipedia entries, surf the net, then head on over to crack an historical code or two, make a few earth-shattering discoveries, and then go back to his day job, pruning trees or repairing small engines. The legend of Cincinnatus is certainly very powerful, isn't it? And to sound impressive, Mr. Atwell then rhymes off names as examples of codes being cracked, namely Champollion, and, and I think he said the Mayan code. The, uh, the audio was not clear, which I take to mean Mayan codices, since there is no such thing as a Mayan code, unless Mr. Uh, Mr. Atwell has another book up his sleeve. So let me correct Mr. Atwell. Champollion was not an amateur. Rather, Jean-Francois Champollion was ultimately this, uh, who ultimately deciphered the language of the ancient Egyptians, what we today call Middle Egyptian, was a great scholar, first and foremost, before he deciphered hieroglyphics. He learned Hebrew from Father Dussard, one of the leading Hebraists in France, and then proceeded to learn Arabic, Syriac, and Aramaic. He then learned Coptic from Domine Raphael of Monachis, a monk of Greek origins. He then turned to Oriental languages and quickly mastered Persian under the guidance of Sylvester uh, de Sassy, one of the leading linguists in France. These are very many years of hard work, of learning and of education. Only then did he turn his attention to Egyptian by way of Coptic, for he rightly understood uh, that Coptic is a related descendant of Middle Egyptian. So it's simply wrong to say that Champollion was an amateur who made great contributions to history. That is not so. He was a leading scholar of his day, himself taught by leading scholars, and therefore he was able to make a great contribution to history because he belonged to the great tradition of acquiring and passing on knowledge and wisdom. As for the Mayan codices, as is well known, there are four of them, as well as six more that cannot be examined given the state in which they were found during excavations. Perhaps one day we will be able to have the technology to properly unfold them and read what they contain. The credit for deciphering the Mayan language goes chiefly to the Soviet linguist Yuri Valentinovich Norosov. Although there are also other contributing epigraphers and linguists who also must be mentioned for their valuable work, such as Linda Scheel, Peter Matthews, and Floyd Lounsbury. None of these people were or are amateurs. Knorosov held a PhD and studied Middle Egyptian, Persian, as well as the literatures of China, Japan, and India before turning to the decipherment of Mayan. It's important to note that decipherment of ancient languages is not code cracking. That is simply a popular misunderstanding. Obviously, Mr. Atwell is name dropping to sound impressive, but upon closer examination, these very names betray his own instability of knowledge and contradict the very uh, contention for which they were provided as proof. Next, Mr. Atwell makes a, very makes a few casual references to, quote, Flavian court historians, and then he gives Tacitus, Dio, and Suetonius as examples. By Dio, I assume he means Cassius Dio. First, the phrase Flavian court historians is something Mr. Atwell has invented. It's a phrase never used by scholars. However, it sounds impressive to the lay person. As for the names Mr. Atwell provides, well, let's have a look. 
Tacitus, although he partially lived through the Flavian period, can in no way be described as a Flavian court historian. In fact, he came to hate the Flavians, especially Domitian, whom he saw as a great tyrant, and he went into voluntary exile just to get away from him. Thus, his annales and histories are warnings against tyrants like the Flavians. This hardly makes him a Flavian court historian. Suetonius was, was born in what is now Algeria and was in no way a court historian of the Flavians. The only book of his that survives, the 12 Caesars, was likely written during the reign of Hadrian, who reigned from 117 to 138 AD. The Flavians are nowhere in sight, uh, and whom Suetonius, by the way, also deeply disliked. So as is becoming obvious, Roman intellectuals really, really hated the Flavians. Cassius Dio lived and wrote during the reigns of Commodus and Septimus Severus. Most of his work does survive, although some of it is fragmented. Again, the Flavians were long gone by this time. So what Flavian court historians? Again, more name dropping to sound impressive. But to be fair, in his book, Mr. Atwill does mention Pliny the Elder, who did write during the Flavian reign. But he was also a severe critic of this dynasty and most certainly not a court historian. He would be horrified if he heard that he was being described as such. And there's also Josephus, of course, whom we will discuss later on. I will also not get into the whole business of the Son of Man and the notion that Hebrew prophecies foretell the, Caesar, foretell the Caesars. That is utter fantasy, since Mr. Atwell has no competence, competence in this area, and he plows through armed with a great deal of ignorance. Therefore, I have no interest in commenting on what he says, since it has nothing to do with history and everything to do with fiction. He's welcome to believe whatever he likes about what the Son of Man means for him, but just be warned that his assertions have nothing to do with scholarship, let alone the Hebrew context of this term. So if you want to keep him company in the far fringes of Western intellectual culture, then you're welcome to do so. I will also leave aside the lengthy discussion in his book on the significance of the number 40 and the very painful to read discussion of dating and whatnot. I'm, also, I'm sure Mr. Atwell regards such overwrought verbosity as engaging with evidence, but to be kind, it simply comes off as more ahistorical speculation, a characteristic of the book, and all in the same repetitive reductivist mode. But there is an interesting and useful phrase that he did repeat a few times, namely settled scholarship. He used this term in order to disregard my points about first century Christian evidence from archeology, span especially Pompeii and Herculaneum, early Christian paintings, ancient graffiti, the Aramaic origins of the gospels, the shroud of Turin, and the spread of Christianity into the East. He remarked that all this is all outside settled scholarship. And this from a man who has written two books beyond the pale of any notion of scholarship, let alone settled, and who is suddenly judging what does or does not belong to settled scholarship. From his remarks, it's obvious that Mr. Atwell is unaware of the many, many exciting and interesting things happening in the area of archeology span and early Christianity. And his view of the Shroud of Turin being a medieval fake might have worked well in the 1970s, but scholarship has moved forward quite a bit since then. And I would suggest that Mr. Atwell try to keep up. But I will also understand why he will not engage with any of this because such tangible evidence entirely destroys his book. So why should he keep up to date? It's not in his interest to be well informed about current scholarship. This is why he can only use fringe writers from the 18th and 19th centuries, as we shall see. I also found it very amusing when he asserted that hundreds of scholars deny the fact that the New Testament is a stable and trusted primary source for the first century. He suggested I'd go look at videos which supposedly dispute settled scholarship on the New Testament. Really? Videos as scholarship? And he then once again name drops, mentioning Robert Price, Rod Blackhurst, and I think he said Harold Ellens. I couldn't catch the name properly. First, videos are a great way to summarize what we know, but no historian actually sits around watching videos in order to get primary evidence for a scholarly book, unless, unless it's a book about films. I'm assuming that Mr. Atwell does not know that when we speak of history, we mean writing. That is the first lecture in History 101. And as for the names that he drops, I had never heard of these people, to be honest, until I looked them up. Robert Price is a mythicist like Mr. Atwell, but more interestingly, I discovered 
Price did a review of Mr. Atfield's book and concluded that it, was, that it was, quote, just ludicrous. This led me to another mythicist, Richard Carrier, who destroys Mr. Atfield's book in a lengthy and rather thorough review, concluding, and I, and I, and I quote, and these are Carrier's words, quote, and once you have to start changing the text all over the place to get what you want on the basis of no evidence whatever, you are in crankland, unquote. I mentioned Carrier because he covers a lot of ground that I would have had to cover, um, but his work is good and, I, and, and he has saved me a lot of time, I'm happy to say. So please read his review uh, of Mr. Atwell's book. It's excellent for his coverage. And perhaps John, uh, you can leave a link to it uh, down below. Absolutely. Uh, so both Price and Carrier are mythicists like Mr. Atwell. So they too inhabit the far fringe of settled scholarship, despite their credentials. But uh, understand this, if the fringe is saying you're a crank and ludicrous, maybe some serious self-reflection is in order on the part of Mr. Atwell. That leaves Rod Blackhurst, whom I found has written a book on alchemy and modern religion. I could not find anything about biblical studies, his PhD dissertation was on the myths in Plato. I don't know how well, uh, Mr. I don't know how Mr. Atwell believes Blackhurst can vouch for what he says. Um, that's up to Mr. Atwell to explain. As for Harold Ellens, if I heard the name right, I'm assuming that he is J. Harold Ellens, who was a, psycho a psychologist and theologian. And he wrote a very interesting paper, which I read called uh, That Tough Guy from Nazareth, a psychological uh, assessment of Jesus. But nowhere does Ellens say that Jesus did not exist, nor does he say anything about the reliability of the New Testament as a historical document. So again, Mr. Atwell seems to be name dropping. It would appear because he knows he can really never really refute the fact that the New, uh, the new, new, that the new Testament is a stable, reliable historical document for the first century. Um, unlike his Josephus, as we shall see. So all he can do is say that he does not want to believe this fact, which he is free to do. Uh, I have no problem with that. But don't then turn around and say that your belief is correct and must replace historical fact. At this stage, it's important to consider what Mr. Atwell did not choose to comment on. That is very, very telling and fatal to his assertions. Regarding my questioning of chronology, he said nothing as to why, why I was raising the issue. Perhaps it was my fault I was trying too hard to be subtle. Uh, so please allow me to be blunt. Is Josephus reliable? Is he such a stable primary source that Mr. Atwell builds his entire book around him? This is what settled scholarship says about Josephus. That Josephus may be a great writer, but he is not an historian. Why? Because his work is contradictory, inaccurate, obviously fabricated, or simply wrong. He is wrong even in his Judean geography, and he cannot keep straight all the names he himself uses. Here is a man supposedly from Judea, and he doesn't know the layout of his own country, and he can't keep straight the names that he is using to tell his story. Sounds very reliable to me. This sloppiness is best summarized by the scholar Eric Huntsman, who is being settled, of course, but who concludes, and I quote, while Josephus's writings may not always be completely reliable, his works can nonetheless be trusted to create a dramatic image of a people and the critical events in their history that have been important for Jews, Christians, and other students of the ancient classical world. In other, worlds, in other words, uh, settled scholarship views Josephus as a good painter, painting an imaginative portrait of the land of Judea and its people in the first century. He is not regarded as a reliable primary source for anything concerning the first century. But Mr. Atwell does not know this because he is happy relying on fringe authors from the 18th and 19th centuries only. Using Josephus as a reliable historical source is Mr. Atwell's greatest folly. He may not like it, but to use his own words, such is settled scholarship. 
and he has yet to prove any part of settled scholarship wrong. All we end up getting is more word salad. In fact, there is no mention of Josephus in any first century source. We have no idea if he even existed. Worse, there is the even greater problem of the witness tradition of Josephus. The earliest manuscript of the complete Judean Wars is a paper one that dates from the 14th or 15th century. Think about that, a millennium and a half after the fact. In fact, most manuscripts of Josephus are fragmentary and notoriously corrupt and very, very late. So my con original concern remains unanswered about chronology. How reliable is Josephus as an historian of the first century when the witness tradition is so late, so corrupted, so fragmentary, and therefore so unreliable. There are no manuscripts, by the way, of Josephus from the first century. But what about Mr. Atwell's own scholarship? How solid is it? Bear in mind, he wishes to replace settled scholarship with his own. He wants to be taken seriously as a scholar. To be blunt, his is a house built on sand, a supposed dazzling statue that has feet of clay, to use the words of both Jesus and Daniel. One of the foremost methods among scholars for assessing good, ar good argumentation is by a careful examination of what is known as scholarly apparatus, also sometimes referred to as critical apparatus. Scholars are always trained to first and foremost examine such apparatus to see if the argument has any merit at all. In fact, in any book of scholarship, that, that is the first thing I myself read and closely look at. For those unfamiliar with this term, scholarly apparatus consists of footnotes or endnotes, bibliography, abbreviations for primary source material, and even symbols to denote recensions of primary source material. Now, what type of scholarly apparatus does Mr. Atwell's book actually possess? Here is what we find. There is a total of 253 endnotes. Nearly all of them are actually only page references, which properly should have been included in the body of the text and not in endnotes. So it's all about optics. It's all about bulking. It's all, it's all a bulking up strategy, which likely looks impressive to the lay reader. Now, of these 253 endnotes, 109 are page references to Josephus, 30 are references to the Bible, 8 refer to selections from the Dead Sea Scrolls, 13 refer to various Hebrew sources, 19 refer to various Roman sources, 26 refer to secondary sources, and there are a few others that I won't categorize. This is hardly impressive. In fact, it's rather embarrassing. A supposedly earth-shattering scholarly book of over 300 pages cannot muster any scholarly references. This hardly invites confidence in Mr. Atwell's ability, let alone his learning. As for the bibliography, it's a very strange beast. There are only 11 books mentioned. Worse, of these, of these 11, five are never used in the entire book, optics again. So that leaves just six books that are actually used. And of these, four are primary sources, that is Josephus, and two editions of the New Testament and a translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So in the end, we are left with two works of secondary material. That is the extent of Mr. Atwell's supposed scholarliness, two books. So how solid are these two books? First, there is Robert, Robert Eisenman's James, the Brother of Jesus, published in 1997. The conclusions reached by, by Eisenman were thoroughly debunked and rejected by settled scholarship over uh, decades ago. Alan Brent, in his review, called Eisenman's arguments, quote, very perverse, unquote, and nothing more than speculative fancy, unquote. And yet this book by Eisenman forms the very backbone of Mr. Atwell's own argument. This is not surprising, since both are writing speculative fiction. Then there is Rabbi Joseph Klausner's Jesus of Nazareth which was translated and published in 1925, so essentially a 19th century book. This is a very dated work with little of relevance uh, in it. In fact, it's, a it's largely a work of Zionist propaganda. Amusingly, Klausner was denied a position at the Hebrew University in Israel for three years because he was considered too fanatical a Zionist 
and no one wanted him to be on the faculty. Klausner's book was considered fringe when it came out, from which it has never emerged in the nearly 100 years since its publication. It's entirely forgotten now, of course, and that's it. That is the extent of Mr. Apple's scholarship in the bibliography, two works by fringe authors. There are nine additional works mentioned in the endnotes, but again, the same pattern. Old, outdated books like the mythicist uh, George Wells, and the others deliberately misunderstood to further Mr. Atwell's claims. Let me give you an example. Mr. Atwell uses Mary Douglas's excellent book, Leviticus, as literature. You might want to ask why Mr. Uh, Atwell is delving into, into Leviticus, but that's besides the point. Uh, to thoroughly, uh, and this, this book by Mary um, uh, Douglas, he thoroughly misunderstands and misrepresents. So here's Mr. Apple trying to engage with Mary Douglas's scholarship. And I quote, and it's a lengthy quote. These are his words. The creators of the Hebrew Bible also use structural parallels at a micro level. For instance, in a technique known as pedimental composition, two passages that contain many parallel parallels are used to provide a literary frame by sandwiching a third central passage between them. For example, Leviticus 18 and 20 provide such a frame for the central passage in Leviticus 19. Um, I've already asked why is he commenting on Leviticus. I have no idea what all this means, by the way, and it has nothing to do with what Mary Douglas actually writes. In fact, what in the world are structures at a micro level in a literary text? I think this is more word salad. But let's continue with this. And again, I quote uh, from Mr. Atwell's book, quote, Josephus is here using an unusual Judaic literary structure called pedimental composition, in which the different passages form columns of a temple. Josephus uses a particular pedimental style of composition in which three pillars form a literary temple. The two side columns are small, both concerns issues having to do with the Jews. And the left, uh, left column is the famous passage about Christ. Unfortunately, scholars have focused on the left-hand passage while ignoring the overall literary composition and the overall rhetorical structure, which indicates that the focus of attention should be on the central column, unquote. I will not even try to figure out what this is supposed to mean. But notice the fiction that has suddenly been built right before our eyes. Suddenly, Pedimental composition has been transformed into, quote, an unusual Judaic literary structure. Mr. Atwill, of course, has no clue what he's talking about, but it all sounds highly impressive to his lay readers. That is the point, after all, isn't it? To impress the impressionable. I hate to break this to Mr. Atwell, but the term pedimental composition was invented by John L. Myers of Oxford University back in the 1930s to study and an analyze the work of Herodotus. It has nothing whatsoever to do with, quote, unusual Judaic literary structures. The term was replaced long ago by the more normative ring composition, which is often used in the analysis, say, of Beowulf and other Old English literature. But an unusual Judaic literary structure? Well, Mr. Atwell's scholarship strikes again. But we're not done yet with this. And again, I quote, it was another comic stroke for Josephus to use a temple-like literary structure to describe an account of a temple. This pedimental structure with the focus on the central passage similarly is used in the book of Leviticus in which chapters 18 and 19 form the side columns and chapter 19 forms the central column of a literary temple. Somehow Leviticus keeps popping up. But did you notice the sleight of hand? It's a trick used ad nauseum throughout the book. First, you give a long quotation, say from Josephus, declare that he is doing this and that, toss in something utterly meaningless, meaningless like unusual Judaic uh, literary structure and pedimental composition, uh, while deep down inside you have no idea what the heck a pedimental composition even is, and then you give some sort of proof. Then you go back and repeat what you picked up somewhere, like Mary Douglas's book, and then you come to a grand conclusion that Josephus is doing the exact same thing that the book of Jose that the book of Leviticus is doing. And there you have it, right before your very very eyes. Josephus just practiced what John L. Myers invented in the 1930s. Brilliant scholarship, 
Of course, the hapless lay reader has no clue what any of this is all about, and neither do I, but it sounds really impressive and learned, and he believes it all. I also think that Mr. Atwell Googled pedimental composition and all kinds of pictures of old buildings came up with columns. I know I did that, just to be sure. Uh, these images quickly became synagogues and temples with columns in Mr. Atwell's imagination. But there is even more amusement afoot. In my second reading, actually, John, is there a prize for reading Mr. Atwell's book twice? <laughs> um, uh, in my second reading, I made a note of this sentence, which actually summarizes what Mr. Atwell is all about. It's a brief sentence, so I won't bore you with a long one. And I quote, Josephus' seeming incoherencies are very significant and are meant to be translated exactly as they were written. Notice the authoritative voice first. So now Mr. Atwell is so intimately in tune with, the, with Josephus that he even knows how Josephus wants his work translated into English. That's very impressive scholarship, I will have to say. But wait, Mr. Atwell also, by, who, by his own admission, knows no Greek, is now dishing out translation advice. And what does that advice even mean? Meant to be translated exactly as they were written. So how else do you translate anything? You can only translate exactly what is written. But I forget that what Mr. Atwell means by history and scholarship, uh, and now even translation apparently, is that you ignore what the ancient act author actually exactly says and merely impose your own agenda on his words. So translating what is exactly written is something you do not do, actually. Uh, it's indeed a foreign concept to Mr. Atwell, since his rule is to make things up as you go along. Vandalism can be very handy. Let me now give you a few examples from the book itself, which I supposedly have not read, uh, where we find lots of misinformation. I think there would be no Roman Messiah without a misinformation, to be honest. Misinformation is this book's fuel. For example, Mr. Atwell observes in passing, and I quote, on the other hand, Cesare Borgia, a 15th century Roman Catholic cardinal and a son of Pope Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia, was quoted as saying, it has served us well, this myth of Jesus. And true to form, of course, Mr. Atwell does not give any attribution of this quotation. He just gives it and moves on, not letting us know where he got it from. And it's a great ploy. But scholarship does demand more. First, let's straighten out the mess that he's created. While it's true that Cesare was the son of Rodrigo Borgia, who later became Pope Alexander VI, and that um, Cesare was educated for priesthood from an early age and was indeed made a cardinal at the age of 18 in 1493. But five years later in 1498, he resigned from his cardinalate and took up a career as a mercenary. He always wanted to be a solar, soldier, but his dad wouldn't let him. For those wandering, uh, uh, Rodrigo Borgia did have several children by different women before he became Pope. Uh, but that is um, another um, uh, matter. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misrepresentation and misinformation about the Borgias in the popular mind, and who have always been, of course, used as prime candidates uh, for, uh, anti for the anti-Catholic black legend. But that's a topic for another day. Uh, Mr. Atwell, likely unwittingly this time, I think, is being highly deceptive implying that a cardinal was calling Jesus a myth. As well, we have some very, uh, we have very little textual uh, evidence for Cesare, let alone his speeches or his quotations by him. I'm not, I'm not aware of any, to be honest. Second, did Cesare really say this? Well, no, he did not. In fact, no Borgia ever said this. It is in fact falsely attributed to Pope Leo X, who was a Medici and not a Borgia. But a concern for historical accuracy is something that we should not expect uh, from Mr. Atwell. In fact, this quotation is from an English anti-Catholic diatribe entitled, The Pageant of the Popes Containing the Lives of All the Bishops of Rome from the Beginning to the Year 1555. And it was written by one John Bale and published in 1574. And it's a typical work of anti-Catholic propaganda in the England of Henry VIII. Bale has his Pope Leo X say, and I quote, these are the exact words, 
all ages can testify enough how profitable that fable of Christ hath been to us and our company. Of course, this bit of dialogue is an invention of Bales, who was also a playwright, by the way. Um, and the saying was much later simplified and popularized by one Robert Taylor, the 19th century mythicist notorious for making up all kinds of things about Jesus. Mr. Atwell likely himself does not know where this quotation comes from. He likely got it from one of the many anti-Christian websites that exist on the internet. I won't comment on his views of the early popes or the Flavian family. Uh, Mr. Atwell might well want to do a book on the Flavian bloodline and how it has been protected by secret, secret societies through the ages, but I want a commission. Uh, moving on, there is the testim Testimonium Flavinium. And again, true to form, Mr. Atwell use, uh, uses two antiquated sources, one by St. John Thackeray and George, and George Wells' commentary. Again, Wells was a mythicist and like Mr. Atwell, who later, who actually interestingly later back, uh, backtracked and said that Jesus was an itinerant preacher after all. Thackeray was solid, but he is now dated. The testimonium itself is very corrupt, is a very corrupted document, and it's difficult to say what parts are authentic and which are not. And it's interesting that Mr. Atwell does not really analyze the testimonium, uh, but skips over it to look at two stories that follow it in the original manuscript. Uh, and the result is more reductivism and more argumentation by haphazard substitution. The analysis of two characters in these stories goes something like this, and uh, uh, don't, don't try to uh, follow along because um, you don't need to. Um, the characters in these stories named, the character in, the in, the in one of the stories named is named Decius Mundus, whom Mr. Atwell says is really uh, Deci a, a character by the name of Decius Moose who was actually a historian, a historical Roman. Um, and um, uh, all you have to do is just, uh, and to explain how he got here, by the way, I should mention that, all you have to do is uh, take away the UND uh, from Decius Mundus's word, and be, lo and behold, you end up with Moose, M-U-S, simple. Uh, and this is how, by the way, you do semantic analysis in linguistics according to Mr. Atwell. Just invent words whenever you need them. Just fiction writing, um, uh, you know, just fiction writing at its best. So let's see. Uh, let's try this as an experiment. And I thought I would do my best at this uh, this as well. So, um, so it's now my contention um, that the United States is a country created by a man named Ted Tates. How do I know this? Well, if you take away the UNI from the first word and the S from the second, what do you end up with? A hidden signature left by Mr. Ted Tates for me to finally discover. Now, that, 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 you know, also that Mr. Ted Tates was very clever. Imagine naming an entire country after himself and hiding his name in plain sight, which no one else could see until I came along and discovered it. Um, so um, this is uh, finally the, the, the secret code of the United States broken by me because I am one of those amateurs that just pops by to crack a code or two. So now we know the secret history of the United States. It's, an, it's a creation of a man named Ted Tapes. Next, Mr. Atwell uses the highly antiquated William Whitston translation of Josephus, which I find very odd. Um, this translation came out in 1732. Yes, that's nearly 300 years ago, but it's perfect for Mr. Atwell um, because it seems that Mr. Atwell has not, not heard of a more reliable recent edition of Josephus by Benedict Nisa. But let's dig deeper. Why does Mr. Atwell use a long discredited translation? Uh, the internet gave it a second life. Of course, Mr. Atwell cannot use Nisa's tradition because, uh, sorry, edition, because he has no Greek, though it has been translated in, in the Loeb series. But could it also be that William Whiston is closer to Mr. Atwell in his antipathy to Christianity? Whiston was a dedicated Unitarian who did everything he could to destroy the idea of the Trinity by getting rid of Christ, which led him to perform all manner of mental contortions. He also needed a straw man on whom he could pin the supposed invention of the Trinity. So an edition of Josephus had been published in the mid 1500s. Whiston was the first to translate this edition into English, and it's an edition filled with many errors. 
In the process, Wiston got busy building into his translation and his now notorious and lengthy footnotes an image of Josephus that justified his Unitarianism. In effect, Wiston invented a Josephus for himself to suit his agenda, an invention that was not, super, that was, uh, not really superseded uh, in the fringe mentality uh, at all. And Nisa's uh, edition, I should mention, came out um, in 1885 through to 1897, and I think it's in seven volumes. So the Josephus that emerges, interestingly enough, in the Nisa edition is nothing like the invention of William Whiston. And Mr. Atwell, of course, uses Whiston because then he can just copy everything Whiston wrote about Josephus and give it his own twist. I should mention that Whiston was learned, uh, being a former Anglican priest. Thus, it was Whiston who came up with Jesus as a Josephan in creation. And it was Whiston who said that the, all the epistles of Paul were also written by Josephus. Mr. Atwell has not discovered anything. He is simply rejigging William Whiston, but things get a little bit worse. Mr. Atwell perhaps intentionally misunderstood my point about stylometry. I did not say that the New Testament has no Latin words in it. In fact, there are 30 Latin words in all in the New Testament, as well as Latinate names. He misunderstood the term I used, Latinisms. A Latinism does not mean the language Latin. The two are extremely different creatures. By the way, his little challenge of finding the only Latin word in the New Testament is highly amusing, and again demonstrates his lack of scholarly depth. The subject of such Latin loan words in the New Testament is a very interesting one. And, I, and like I said, there are, nine, uh, there are 30 Latin words in the New Testament. But because of the peculiar nature of the internet, only one of these 30 words has made it to, into popular consciousness. And that word is sudarion, which in the, uh, in the Latin is sudarius, or literally sweat rag, uh, that is a handkerchief. But that aside, my suggestion was not about hunting down Latin words in the New Testament. Um, that, of course, is a misunderstanding. Rather, what I said was this, and I will repeat it in simpler terms. Stylometric analysis precisely and clearly shows that whoever wrote Josephus could never have written the New Testament. The texts ascribed to Josephus are filled with Latinisms which means that whoever wrote these Josephan texts spoke Latin as his mother tongue, and he uses Greek as a Latin speaker would use it. This also immediately calls into question the entire narrative of Josephus as a Judean rebel whose, whose mother tongue was Aramaic. In other words, stylometry clearly shows that an Aramaic speaker did not write the books of Josephus. A Latin speaker wrote them. Further, the various books of the New Testament show Semitim, which means that the writers of the New Testament had a Semitic language as their mother tongue and Greek as their second language. Stylometry shows uh, there is a one in nine sextillionth of a chance that Josephus wrote the Gospels or any other book of the Bible. That is a nine followed by 36 zeros. This statistical fact destroys Mr. Atwell's Roman Messiah completely, unless Mr. Atwell can do his own stylometric analysis of the Josephine texts and the New Testament and prove this statistical fact wrong. By the way, statistics is a very accurate science. In the popular mind, unfortunately, this should not be, this is often confused wrongly uh, with political polls, which are largely untrustworthy. Stylometry and political polls are two entirely different things. Thus, Mr. Atwell's false Roman Messiah is easily crucified, dead, and buried. Next, Mr. Atwell ignored my critique of his misunderstanding of Greco-Roman humor. Again, unless he can easily show that what he postulates about the Flavians inserting mean in-jokes into the New Testament, um, that it emerges uh, out of a clear first century comedic context, that part of his analysis too is dead on arrival. He also ignores my critique of his misunderstanding of the Hebrew faith in the first century. Again, 
There were no Jews as such at that time. That is a later and Christian designation. And what we do know, what we do know of the Hebrew faith system clearly tells us that there was no universal common Judaism. There were lots and lots of sects and schools and factions. This also means that it's a complete falsehood to claim that all the Jews awaited a warrior Messiah. They did not. And Mr. Abdel made no attempt at explaining what he means by the Jews and by the term Messiah. No doubt he simply used the dictionary. Most of the Hebrews did not have any theology of the Messiah, nor any expectation of one. In fact, for most Hebrew people, the term Messiah simply meant the local rabbi, a faith teacher, and nothing more. This makes Jesus as Messiah that much more unique. In fact, Messianism did not exist in the first century Judea. And Mr. Atwell can quote as much Josephus as he wants and even trundle out those four or five references to the Dead Sea Scrolls that he rather meaninglessly dropped. But the fact remains, it's a settled, it's settled scholarship that first century Hebrews did not have Messianism. So why would the Flavians busy themselves writing so many books in order to fulfill an expectations, an expectation that the Hebrews themselves did not possess until a few centuries later? And it was developed, by the way, as a and I should say Messian Messianism was developed as a reaction to Christianity, a Hebrew reaction to Christianity. I guess Flavian time travel will be Mr. Atwell's next sequel. Nobody in the first century Levant was awaiting for a so-called warrior messiah, not even the so-called zealots. This too is settled scholarship. And I've already spoken about the zealots as land pirates. Mr. La Mr. Atwell can disagree, but he cannot disprove what I say because I've only repeated settled scholarship. Nor does Mr. Atwell address my point that there were no Sikarii in first century Judea. It's all simply Josephus aligning his book to Roman expectations. Remember, Josephus is not writing facts. He is painting an imagined landscape. And as for my point about the Romans failing to manipulate far worse enemies than the people of Judea, Mr. Atwell posits a true non sequitur that the Gauls, Germans, and the Persians were polytheists who had no problem, problem worshipping Caesar. Well, Mr. Mel, maybe Mr. Atwell should read more and find out about Vercingetorix, Arminius, and Shapur the Great, and what happened to the Emperor Valerian. This too is settled scholarship. And the Romans did not, by the way, worship Caesars. Despite all the movies and millions of websites out there, they worshiped the spirit of Rome, or the genius of Roma, or what anthropologists used to call the mana. That lastly, let me briefly show how Mr. Atwell misunderstood, misunderstands and then misrepresents the Hebrew tradition. It's far worse than his sleight of hand with that pedimental composition business. Mr. Atwell makes much of the Targum tradition and uses the pseudo-Jonathan to get his point across that the Jews wanted a warrior Messiah. The only problem is that this Targum, this very Targum dates from the fifth century AD, hundreds of years after the Flavians were dead and gone and the Roman world was Christian. In fact, dating the Targum tradition is very problematic, but Mr. Mr. Uh, sorry, but Mr. Atwell seems not to know this or care. So the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan sounds pretty impressive to the lay reader, but it's a very late text. Mr. Atwell also drags in the Damascus document in the discussion of the, Jewish, of the Jewish Messiah. This document is part of the Dead Sea Scrolls and likely dates from about 70 AD. The problem for Mr. Atwell is that it mentions a Messiah figure, but here the term Messiah simply means the high priest, hardly a warrior Messiah. I can dig up many, many other examples from his book. Nearly every page, unfortunately, is littered with misunderstandings and misrepresentations. But that would be heaping Pelion on Osa, as I mentioned earlier. So just let me conclude by saying that the code that is finally cracked here is the myth of Mr. Atwell's scholarship. But more importantly, for the readers, books such as these offer the reader a choice as, you know, as life always offers choices, 
Will the reader participate in intellectual vandalism or will he have the courage to contribute to the difficult task of civilization? That is the real lesson that the Roman Messiah offers. And that lesson we should very carefully heed. Thank you for your time. Very good. Thank you so much, Dr. Das, for your response there. The third uh, recording in this series uh, of the critique and the discussion between Dr. Nirmal Das and Mr. Joseph Atwell concerning Atwell's book, Caesar's Messiah. I would like to take a, just a few minutes here uh, to thank Dr. Das, as well as uh, Mr. Joseph Atwell, for their time in this project. Both gentlemen uh, spend a great deal of time preparing for this uh, back and forth, in addition to the time they spent uh, recording on camera. So uh, we want to appreciate that as viewers, the time that our scholars and our authors and this sort of thing, they, they are able to, to contribute. One of the words Dr. Das used in this recording, which I think uh, we need to be like vampires um, to, to sunlight for, is anti-intellectualism. And as a teacher and an educator and uh, this sort of thing on my end, this is a big problem that I'm perceiving in the West. I'm not alone by that uh, conclusion, I'm sure. And this, that is to say, anti-intellectualism. And as an educator, I've been uh, proud as punch to have this uh, back and forth by Dr. Das and Mr. Atwell. The uh, tertiary school systems, the colleges, uh, in the past couple of years, at least in these United States and, and also in other countries, um, very regretfully, oftentimes have been allergic to this type of back and forth, uh, even to a type of uh, cancel culture and uh, type of censorship and so forth. And then we had these uh, shutdowns and whatever will come about these uh, things, especially for, for tertiary education, for college education, um, there's a great realignment coming. Uh, particularly towards online work or just away from the higher education world. In many ways, this is good, um, but in many ways, the anti-intellectualism, um, which Dr. Das pointed out um, and would be a whole show in and of itself, is something I fear very greatly um, that's coming about, including in, in the alternative world or um, those of us who are apt to critique education. So that's all a rigmarole simply to say that I was very happy to, to host on the various platforms of Apocastostasis this back and forth, because we're going to need this very much. The, the education world is going to be changing quite a bit, and we, we don't want to get sloppy. And that's a big danger I see on the horizon. And Dr. Das and Mr. Atwell are uh, two examples of people providing um, against that um, outcome happening. So once again, Dr. Das, thank you for your time. I you thank uh, Mr. Atwell again, once again. I also thank you viewers for your attention and also for doing your due diligence, both in paying attention to this back and forth, as well as understanding Joseph Atwell's initial argument. Once again, that can be found from the documentary on caesarsmessiah.com, as well as from Atwell's book of the same title. But we want to remember that viewers um, cannot be passive. Uh, in many respects in the West, uh, and this also goes for students, um, the, the cul-de-sac, to use Malcolm X's expression, that we are in has come about because we've been too passive. So even if we're watching, we have to be active in terms of doing our own work. Anyway, um, check out Caesar's Messiah. Nirmal, tell us about the postal. Yes, thepostal.com uh, is the best place where you can find me, and it has lots of interesting uh, uh, content that I think people will enjoy reading. I think you will leave a, a link to it, perhaps, um, at the bottom. Absolutely, I will do so. I will do so for uh, CaesarMessiah.com, Joseph Atwell's site, and uh, for my work at uh, Pakistan Stacy's here in Connecticut, I will put a link to the college as well. Um, any correspondence from the viewers is welcome in the... Uh, description of this video, and I will, um, by hook or by crook, 
It's getting harder and harder to do with, with YouTube, but I will uh, try to pull these files, re-edit them into one single um, presentation and put that also, in addition to these three separate ones, which will be on a playlist, also there will hopefully be one single file with all of these, and that will, in addition, be put on BitChute as well. So with all of that, I thank everyone. I asked Dr. Das to stay on for a moment, uh, but I thank all the viewers and the participants. Bye-bye.